You're listening to the Healthcare Goes Digital podcast. Get ready to be inspired as we explore provocative topics surrounding innovative technologies and ideas with top industry professionals, digital entrepreneurs, and provocateurs. At Impetus Digital, we believe that everything starts with a conversation. We aspire to act as the bridge to not only ignite these courageous conversations, but to also sustain them over time. We do this through our Insight platform, which features our award-winning Insight events and Insight Touchpoint solutions, and through these fireside chats. In the end, our hope is to collectively and positively disrupt healthcare. Let's get started with your host, Natalie Eden. CEO and co-founder of Impetus Digital, an all-in-one, fully-serviced virtual collaboration and communication solution for online meetings, events, conferences, and advisory boards for life science companies. Hello, everybody. My name is Natalie Yeadon. I'm the CEO and co-founder with Impetus Digital. At Impetus Digital, we have built some of the best-in-class asynchronous and synchronous virtual collaboration and communication tools. We have worked with life science companies from across the globe over the past 14 years to help them with everything from digital advisory boards, virtual medical education, online investigator meetings, and Since the launch of our award-winning Insight Events platform, we've also been helping pharmaceutical companies with their large corporate events, innovation hackathons, MSL and sales rep training, and everything in between. But more importantly at Impetus, we really believe that everything starts with a conversation. And from these big, hairy, audacious conversations that we have with some of the leading edge thinkers, digital provocateurs, and healthcare thought leaders, we can all work together to collectively and positively disrupt healthcare. So I'm really excited to have one of these thought leaders at the table with me today. This is actually Joshua Goldberg. He's actually the co-managing partner at NAF, Goldberg and Mayer, and he's a patent attorney who helps his clients acquire patents and trademarks quickly and successfully in the U.S. and around the world to help them protect, protect their products, as well as to help build their company's value. He was inspired to become a patent attorney to help inventors and companies protect their technologies and bring new innovative products to market, um, thereby continuing to help people live in the future. As a partner in charge of the chemical, pharmaceutical and biotechnology department of his firm, Joshua's practice involves portfolio management and analysis, including the preparation, prosecution and acquisition of US and foreign patents across a wide range of technology areas. These are things like that are, you know, conducting re-examination proceedings, obtaining patent term extensions, um, doing things like conducting paragraph five analysis, four analyses, the preparation of patentability, the freedom to operate, non-infringement and valid uh, validity opinions, things like pre-litigation analysis and client counseling. So a whole slew of things that we're probably gonna be able to dabble in today Um, and also doing things like patent portfolio valuation, and as well as conducting licensing negotiations. So tons of things. Thank you, Josh. So happy to have you on the show today. Oh, thank you so much, Natalie. I'm really happy to be here. Awesome. So we are kind of all things digital, um, but we did want to bring you in because there's, you know, the world of digital has all kinds of 
permutations and you know considerations that you know are digital. So before we get start started on that, why don't we actually learn a little bit about you? Um, you know, you have a bachelor's degree in, in chemical engineering, so oftentimes people will go down that route. Um, what what tell us a little bit about your career trajectory and how you landed where you are today in the intellectual property law space? Oh, I'd be happy to. So, like you just said, I do have that chemical engineering background. And not only did I study chemical engineering at university, but I also actually worked in industry for a couple of years doing drug composition work. What does that mean? So I worked for a very small outfit out in St. Louis, which is where I went to university. And what we did is we had big pharma companies, think the Merck's and Pfizer's of the world, who developed and created these new actives, these new drugs, they needed to find a solution to how do you put it in a pellet or a capsule or a tablet? How do you coat it so it makes it through the stomach into the intestines? All sorts of things like that, that they would come to us to try to develop that solution for them. So I used to work with uh, spray dryers and polymers and all sorts of things to try to come up with this type of solution. You know, how do we actually put your new drug in a formulation for you? It was a wonderful, wonderful experience, but for a variety of reasons, it also made me realize I was not put on this earth to be a bench scientist. Uh, it's that simple. And I used to have, while I was studying, a professor at university who had a patent lawyer buddy, and he would tell us stories about his patent lawyer buddy all the time. He his, had a ranch out in Colorado that he took his private helicopter to, and he had his half dozen or so fancy cars. And I'm thinking to myself, gee, this doesn't sound so bad. I can do all of these things. So instead of becoming a long-term scientist or engineer, I went to law school to become a patent attorney. Well, I did that quite a while ago. I graduated from law school in 1999. I don't have a ranch in Colorado. I was just going to ask you that. Yeah, what about all your fancy cars? Was that, was that a, you know, yeah. My, my, my fancy car is a, a mini clubman, if you consider that fancy. <laughs> um, I enjoy it. I like it. But, you know, that, that's who I am. And I have to tell you, if I had a private helicopter, I probably wouldn't fly in it because I have a fear of heights. <laughs> so um, none of that worked out. Yet I'm still very happy with the career I've chosen for myself. Wonderful. Awesome. So let's actually dig into this a little bit. Tell us a little bit about what intellectual law is and means and mm -hmm. specifically how it applies to life science companies and or all of the consumer electronic or small digital you know entrepreneurs small companies are now dabbling into this tell us a little bit about all of that sure so any of those companies that you mentioned whether it's a life science company a, a smaller electronics company consumer products company they're all trying to do something different than everybody else, whatever that is. They either have a new invention, a new technology, a new name or brand or logo, something that distinguishes themselves from everybody else in the marketplace. What I do is I come in and I help them turn that something new, that unique identifier into a concrete right, a registration. Think of, you know, if you buy a piece of property, you have your deed that tells you what you actually own. This is no different. I get them their registration that tells them this is what I actually own so that now when they're in the marketplace, 
they can stop others from doing that exact same thing. They can keep that market to themselves. Now, if somebody else comes up with their own innovative solution, can they compete on that basis? Sure, but that's fair competition. You know, I create something, you create something. We go out in the marketplace and we see what's better. That's fine. I don't think anybody's going to argue against that. What I do is make sure that for, especially for those health life sciences companies, you've put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears into creating something new. You've spent a lot of money on developing it. You want to actually reap some rewards from it. I help you make sure that happens without somebody else swooping in and taking it from you. 100%. So what are some of the typical, you know, and again, I'm going to talk about pre-COVID because I think the world has kind of changed and went upside down and there's just been a propellant or a tailwind around all things digital. So let's think about the prior world. What were some of the IP pitfalls or concerns that you were seeing in the world before COVID? Well, in the world before COVID, it actually hasn't changed that much in the post-COVID world other than how you go about getting from, I have an idea to let's protect it, right? The biggest thing pre-COVID was, what do I have? What did I create? And did my inventors or my scientists or my researchers actually put it out there to the world before I could file something on it? This is probably the most common issue that we face all the time. So when you invent something, you want to file your patent application first before you publish on it. Uh, While in the university world, it's publish or perish, in my world, it's publication kills. Because that now is considered something that would be prior art against whatever I'm doing. So if I publish, say, you know, I, I create a new oncology cancer drug, and I published on that back in 2020, you know, it doesn't matter what year, it, what month it is, what day. And now here we are in 2022, I want to now file a patent application on that same drug. I can't do it anymore because I have donated that drug to the public by publishing it, putting it out there before I actually tried to protect myself. Well, this makes it a really interesting conundrum, especially in the world of shared knowledge. Knowledge is free. We hear about platforms like the GitHubs where there's shared code and it's open code and there's a whole philosophy and culture around that. How do we balance the need for trade, you know, um, patent tradeability or um, you know, all of the IP protection while at the same time trying to foster innovation in a really rapid and efficient manner? Sure. That's a really excellent question. A lot of people spend a lot of time looking into it and trying to figure out the best way. There's no perfect solution. But what I can say is if you are working on something innovative, unless it really is something that's done in collaboration with multiple people in multiple places, you're going to want to try to do something to file on it before you put it out there. And what we often do, uh, we have a client that comes to us and says, hey, I have this new invention, this new technology I created, and I want to publish on it, or I'm going to publish on it, or I'm going to speak about it in one week, two weeks, three weeks, whatever that time frame is. We say, all right, that's fine, not a problem. 
we can file what's called a provisional application for you, something very quick. We can get it done in one or two days that reserves your spot at the patent office. And that then gives you one year to do something more, you know, develop the idea further, prepare a full patent application, whatever it is you need to do, so that even if you publish or speak within that one year, you can still go back to that provisional application filing date and you're okay. What is the advantage? I'm thinking specifically about smaller companies, ones that maybe don't have the manpower or the financial power to be going after these patents. Um, what is what do you say is ultimately the benefit, or why do why would these companies want to consider getting a trademark or a patent? Well, uh, that's a great question, and it's something I talk about a lot, especially for smaller companies, startups, companies that are just getting uh, out there uh, in the healthcare space. If you're working on a new drug, you're going to need a lot of funding or a partner to pay for all your clinical trials and getting through the regulatory process, it's very difficult for those companies to do everything on their own. That means they need to find somebody to either buy them, fund them, uh, acquire them, license technology from them, whatever it is. And I can tell you one of the first questions when you're looking for those partners is going to be, what's your IP position? Okay, what have you done to protect yourself? What have you done so that if I'm going to invest in you, whatever shape that investment is, I'm not taking a huge risk that that investment is basically money that's gone. I'm never going to see again, right? So, you know, I've talked with a lot of people and generally if, if you go and you talk to these partners and they ask, what's your IP position? And you say, oh, you know, I've been thinking about it. Uh, I mean to get a patent. What is IP? You know, why do I care about this? Not only does your ass keep going down and down and down, but that might be the end of the conversation right there. If instead you could say, well, look, you know, I do have this clearly laid out position. I've gotten these three patents. I have these trademarks. This is what I'm going to do next. These are the areas I've left open for my partners to work on. Not only is the conversation going to be able to continue, but your ask is just going to keep going up and up and up. There are some companies, uh, let's be really honest, like the big five, the, or, you know, and it doesn't even have to be, they can be mid-market. Mid They're very large. They have the legal suite. They have the financials. They have the, the wherewithal to be able to actively protect and manage their patents and trademarks. Come in the small company. They've got, you know, a couple of people, everybody's staying overnight and they're, you know, just trying to make, you know, trying to make ends meet and they haven't hit profit yet. And they're just still, they're just getting into the market. How do you still manage the, uh, the benefit, if you will, of going after the patent at that stage when it's really essential to protect it, but at the same time, they don't have the ability to be navigating, researching, and finding out if somebody's infringing on their patents. What do you tell those companies? Well, Again, when we're talking about the healthcare space, I'll use that as the specific example here. Most often at those early stages, there is not somebody else out there in the market. So you don't have to be as concerned yet about somebody else being out there and infringing on your patents. The other thing that you have to consider is if you are looking for these partners, these long-term relationships, people to fund you, 
to you know, help you advance. Most of big pharma, most of the big five that you just talked about, they don't do their own R&D anymore. Or if they do, it's nowhere near at the level of investment that they used to have. Instead, what they do is they look for all these smaller companies that you're talking about who have all of these innovative new technologies. And they look to cherry pick the ones, okay, these are the most advanced on the technology basis. These are the ones that have a good IP position around them. So as we go forward, if this really is something, we're not taking a risk on that front. And they'll invest in those companies, either through acquisition, license, what have you, as their new means of R&D. So if you're going through the process and you're going through the development and you're not doing everything you can to say, okay, I'm checking this box. Yes, uh, I have an, I'll go back to oncology because I've been talking about it. Yes, I have some good uh, in vitro study results. Yes, I have some good mouse model results. Yes, I have my technology protected. So where if you invest, you feel your investment is safe on that front. Unless you do those things, you're not going to be able to get the investment. You're not going to attract that interest. And you're still just going to be spinning that same wheel over and over and over again. In your experience um, doing these, you know, patents, et cetera, for smaller companies who potentially are, you know, there's an M&A involved with larger companies, what have you. Have you seen a deals falling through because people do not have a patent position or B, have you seen that if they do, do you see the differences in perhaps the valuation of companies that have an IP position versus those that do not? Uh, that's absolutely 100% yes. So not only do I see deals falling through if there's no patent position, generally I don't see a deal getting to a stage where there's even a deal under discussion if there's no patent position. Where I will see deals falling through is once you know, the, the partner looks at the patent position, oh, well, you only protected this part of the technology, but not this part. Or you only have protection here in the US and no opportunity for something in other countries. Uh, those are places where a deal might fall through. Other things I've seen are, well, ha have you actually looked at it? What have you done? Work, work, have you done to have a full package that you're bringing to us besides just the science? Uh, those are really common. You know, where deals fall through on the valuation side, if you don't have a patent, your valuation is going to be much lower. I just started talking with a company this week where they have a very huge valuation, very large for, again, an oncology product. They only have one patent, but that one patent covers exactly what they're going to do. And they have filed in a number of markets around the world where it's still pending. So they're protected outside the US as well. That shows a strong valuation that supports the strong valuation that this is the size of the market. And you partners can be confident if you invest in us, your investment is safe on that front. Now, of course, you still need to get through all the scientific hurdles, you know, get through phase one, phase two, phase three, whatever it is. And as we all know, many products fail at those stages, but that's part of the inherent risk in the healthcare space. You want to minimize anything beyond those inherent risks as much as you can. So I'm a small biotech firm. 
and I have some innovations and I want to go down the track of a patent. I'm going to contact NGM. What is going to be the process? Tell us about the timelines and the costing and what is what does this this workflow look like? So I just want to make sure I, I'm answering what you're asking. So this is a, a new biotech that has not done anything yet to protect themselves, correct? Correct. Okay. So the, the first thing that we would do is we would have a conversation, just like you and I are having a conversation. I would want to understand who the company is, what their technology is, what their business goals are, you know, where they're trying to get to. Because I don't believe in doing work for the sake of doing work. I was taught, and I believe I only want to do things that enhance the value of the company, that make business sense. And let's say we have that conversation, and from my perspective, everything looks good. Yes, you have some brand new technology. No, it has not published yet to where there's no sense of even proceeding. Um, yes, we have the right personality fit. We can work together, all of those things. What I would do is have an engagement agreement between us and that company. Number, what does that do? It says that we're your lawyer, you're our client, everything we do and say between us is privileged and confidential. I can't disclose it to anybody. I can't discuss it with anybody. If anybody tries to get it from me, they can't. It's like an NDA on steroids, okay? So that's where I would start. Then, we would start by doing a search, a patent search, making sure before we spent a lot of time and money and effort and resources that yes, this genuinely is new. Nobody else has done it before. Uh, and that's the kind of thing that is normally 750 to $1,000, something like that, a smaller investment. And when I say smaller, it's because if you have a new pharmaceutical invention, a new biotech invention, to draft a patent application and get that filed you're now looking at the eight to $15,000 range, depending on exactly what it is. So that's to get started. You know, we do a search, the search comes up good. We draft a patent application, we get it on file and we start moving on, okay? Once you get that patent application on file, of course you want it to turn into a patent at some point. On average, it takes two to four years from when you file your patent application to get a patent. That's a long time. Now, we've found a way that if you pay a little extra money to the government here in the US, we all know the government likes to take, get its fees and get its money, you can get advanced out of turn. You can go to the front of the line and we can get you a patent within less than one year. So if you think about it, that's at least a 50% reduction in time. If you're a small company looking for funding, that could be huge for you, okay? What does that process look like in cost? Well, we generally have to have a negotiation back and forth with a patent examiner at the US Patent Office. The patent examiner says, I think you do not deserve a patent for reasons X, Y, and Z. And we say, well, no, you're wrong. We deserve a patent for reasons A, B, and C. And we go through that negotiation, uh, usually one or two rounds, and then eventually we come to an agreement and we say, okay, yes, no, th this is why we're going to get a patent and we get you your patent. That process can be anywhere from $1,000 to $8,000, depending on how difficult the examiner is being. 
and then you have a US patent. But again, remember I talked about the need to file around the world. You have one year when you file your first patent application to file around the world or else around the world is lost. One thing we do very often, we file what's called a PCT application, Patent Cooperation Treaty. What that does is that says, okay, we are interested in international protection. We're not yet ready yet to file in all those countries, wherever it is we want to. So we're going to make a reservation. We're going to reserve our right to file around the world for another 18 months. So instead of having to file around the world at 12 months from when you actually did something, you now have a total of 30 months to do that. And for small companies, that's huge because it lets them defray costs until they know what they have, until they have some more funding, all of those things. And if you're looking at partners and they see you have a pending PCT application, oh, I can decide where I want to file and those that option is not lost, great. You're doing everything that I want you to do. 100%. Wow. Sounds fantastic. So again, a huge need for going international and a huge need for decreasing that patent process to as minimal a time as possible. So some interesting ideas. We talked about the world changing and everything is digitizing. There's a digital transformation going on globally and more specifically in healthcare and in the pharma and life sciences space. I'm sure you've seen all kinds of new novel technologies, everything from software as a medical device to other sorts of regulated sort of new technologies and, and the speed at which things are happening. I was just curious as to have, how has your management of IP changed with the advent of these new rapid technologies in, in the life sciences space? Well, there are a few things. Number one, we used to go and visit all of our clients regularly. You know, walk the floor with them, talk to their researchers in person, see what there's going on, what they're doing. Clearly, I have not been doing that over the past two or so years. Uh, nobody's been doing that. So what does that mean? I've had now to partake of some of these new digital technologies like you've been mentioning, like Zoom that we're talking on now, to try to get this information that I used to be able to do in person. It's very interesting. A lot of the companies I talk with, um, you know, I talk with other lawyers, people in charge of the company. Have you been in person or working from home? Oh no, we've been working from home because the only people allowed to go into the office are the researchers. They need to be running the experiments in their labs and things like that. Did the digital transformation has not changed that aspect of what they're doing. You still need to do your titrations. You still need to check your cell lines, all of that. And that can only be done in person. So that has changed. That has not changed. But what has changed is how you record your data. Everybody used to use you know, their lab notebooks. And we used to have very stringent requirements. This is what we want you to see in your lab notebooks, things like that. Now that's all being done digitally. So people can share information more readily with us. The speed at which we're able to progress and get through a patent application, get through initial analysis and study has increased exponentially, I would say. Uh, sometimes that's really good because we're waiting on data, waiting on information, and we get it much quicker than we used to. 
sometimes it's less good, quite frankly, because somebody will come to us and say, yeah, you know, it used to be that we had two months before this was going to be out there. Now it's two weeks or two days, something like that. And really has to make us accelerate our process on our end to make sure rights are not lost. It's a very funny world out there. You know, again, when we talk about the traditional way that there's blockbusters and something truly novel and something that's truly patentable. And now we live in a world of mashups and amalgamation of various other sort of IP and suddenly I have something new. In addition, the concern of people lurking online and doing things like patent trolling. How do you sort of help and protect individuals around you know, this new milieu and this new ecosystem that we live in where everything is open and available and then there's mashups and what's truly novel and what's really patentable. Right. Well, you know, if you go back just a few minutes to when you were asking me, what does the process look like? Once we have that attorney-client relationship, I said we start with a search. I always recommend starting with a search to make sure that we do genuinely have something new that there isn't somebody else who came out there beforehand. You know, in the health tech space, when you talk about patent trolls, I'm less concerned about patent trolls for smaller companies, uh, startup companies, things like that, because generally they don't have a product. They don't have something out there in the marketplace. And until there are sales, until there is a market, the patent troll is not going to bother because quite frankly, they'll sue you and get what? Nothing. Why are they going to waste their time and effort? Uh, it's different if you're in you know, more of the digital, pure digital space, or if you actually are selling you know, cars or pens or whatever it is where there is a marketplace out there. The other thing in the health tech space is you have this regulatory hurdle, this barrier. So even if you get your patent, even if you have your invention and your technology worked out, you're not necessarily getting into the market until you've gotten the approval from you know, the authority in whatever country it is. Here in the US, it's the FDA, Food and Drug Administration. Somebody else can't get out there and compete with you until they've gotten through that regulatory hurdle also. So patent trolls, to me, they're less worrisome, less of a concern in the health tech space than they are in many other spaces. Yeah, really interesting that there's definitely a high barrier to entry for sure. We kind of want to end on this last question, which is a little bit more provocative, and that is we're living in a world of blockchain, um, you know, smart, uh, smart contracts, DAOs, chain link, uh, Oracle chain links, all kinds of new technologies. At the end of the day, the premise behind this is reducing the need for trust between different entities. And eventually the idea is that um, it's permissive, uh, permissionless it, it, uh, it executes without third parties. I'm wondering if this is a discussion that, that the you know, lawyers, attorneys are having conversations about um, what is this gonna look like and how will this kind of technology impact things like patent law? Well, again, it comes back to the idea of publication kills, right? So what you want to do in this new world is make sure that if you are discussing your invention, your idea, your creation with somebody out there, whether it's in person or digitally, that you are able to lock that down to some extent, 
you know, I'm not going to tell you, you can't talk about it with anybody, but you talk about it under an NDA. You talk about it under the understanding that we're collaborating on this. This is not being put out there for public knowledge, but it really is private, privileged, confidential, all of those things. You really don't want to be part in any of these public digital until you know you've done something that protects you. It really is, I'm not going to tell you, don't do it. I'm not going to tell you, you know, don't participate, don't use the new technology available. Just think about what you're doing and do things in the right order. Beautiful, well said. Well, um, that kind of comes up to our time. I think this was a really interesting conversation and a lot of things for people to consider. If anybody's interested in speaking with Joshua Goldberg, his contact details are obviously have been on his screen the whole time. It's also in the show notes below. So please feel free to connect and collaborate and, and see if you might want to partner. If you enjoy this conversation, please also check out impetusdigital.com. These are the kinds of conversations that we have with physicians, payers, allied healthcare providers, patients. We connect them with life science companies, pharmaceutical companies through a series of synchronous, so real time, and asynchronous, not real time touch points throughout the year helping them plan and due diligence on strategy, protocol development, changing the paradigm, doing different things about what they're doing with their brands, if they're bringing in technologies, if they're gonna be doing partnerships so we can get work done in a really seamless and efficient and very cost-effective manner. So check out impetusdigital.com. We'd really appreciate if you can like and subscribe to our channel and please leave us some feedback on iTunes. We wanna thank everybody for their time today and thank you, Joshua, for a fascinating conversation. Thank you for listening to this Healthcare Goes Digital podcast. Impetus Digital are the business-to-business -business virtual engagement experts and provide immersive virtual collaboration and communication solutions for advisory boards, medical education meetings, events, conferences, and projects worldwide, all delivered with our award-winning white glove service. Visit us at impetusdigital.com or book a demo at meetwithimpetus.com to find out more. And visit us on our LinkedIn, Twitter, and YouTube channel to see other inspiring conversations for you to share with your network.